Chapter Eight of The Law and the Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wiebke Müller. The Law and the Lady by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Eight: The Friend of the Women. I find it impossible to describe my sensations while the carriage was taking me to Major Fitzdavid's house. I doubt, indeed, if I really felt or thought at all in the true sense of those words. From the moment when I had resigned myself into the hands of the chambermaid, I seemed in some strange way to have lost my ordinary identity, to have stepped out of my own character. At other times my temperament was of the nervous and anxious sort, and my tendency was to exaggerate any difficulties that might place themselves in my way. At other times, having before me the prospect of a critical interview with a stranger, I should have considered with myself that it might be wise to pass over and what it might be wise to say. Now I never gave my coming interview with a major a thought. I felt an unreasoning confidence in myself and a blind faith in him. Now neither the past nor the future troubled me. I lived unreflectingly in the present. I looked at the shops as we drove by them, and at the other carriages as they passed mine. I noticed, yes, and enjoyed, the glances of admiration which chance-foot passengers on the pavement cast on me. I said to myself, This looks well for my prospect of making a friend of the Major. When we drew up at the door in Vivian Place, it is no exaggeration to say that I had but one anxiety, anxiety to find the Major at home. The door was opened by a servant out of livery, an old man who looked as if he might have been a soldier in his earlier days. He eyed me with a grave attention, which relaxed little by little into sly approval. I asked for Major Fitzdavid. The answer was not altogether encouraging. The man was not sure whether his master were at home or not. I gave him my card. My cards, being part of my wedding outfit, necessarily had the fool's name printed on them, Mrs. Eustace Woodwill. The servant showed me into a front room in the ground floor and disappeared with my card in his hand. Looking about me, I noticed a door in the wall opposite the window, communicating with some inner room. The door was not of the ordinary kind. It fitted into the thickness of the partition wall, and worked in groves. Looking a little nearer, I saw that it had not been pulled out so as completely to close the doorway. Only the merest chink was left, but it was enough to convey to my ears all that passed in the next room. "'What did you say, Oliver, when she asked for me?' inquired a man's voice, pitched cautiously in a low key. "'I said I was not sure you were at home, sir,' answered the voice of the servant who had let me in. There was a pause. The first speaker was evidently Major Fitzdavid himself. I waited to hear more. "'I think I had better not see her, Oliver,' the Major's voice resumed. "'Very good, sir. "'Say I have gone out, and you don't know when I shall be back again. "'Beg the lady to write if she has any business with me.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Stop, Oliver.' Oliver stopped. There was another and longer pause. Then the master resumed the examination of the man. "'Is she young, Oliver?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And pretty?' "'Better than pretty, sir, to my thinking.' "'Ay, ay! What do you call a fine woman, eh, Oliver?' "'Certainly, sir.' "'Tall?' "'Nearly as tall as I am, Major.' "'Ay, ay, ay, a good figure!' "'As slim as a sapling, sir, and as upright as a dart.' "'On second thoughts, I'm at home, Oliver. Show her in, show her in.' So far one thing at least seemed to be clear. I had done well in sending for the chambermaid. What would Oliver's report of me have been if I had presented myself to him with my colourless cheeks and my ill-dressed hair? 
the servant reappeared and conducted me to the inner room major fitz david advanced to welcome me what was the major like well he was like a well-preserved old gentleman of say sixty years old little and lean and chiefly remarkable by the extraordinary length of his nose after this feature i noticed next his beautiful brown wig his sparkling little grey eyes his rosy complexion his short military whisker dyed to match his wig his white teeth and his winning smile his smart blue frock-coat with a camellia in the buttonhole and his splendid ring a ruby flashing on his little finger as he courteously signed to me to take a chair dear mrs woodville how very kind of you this is i have been longing to have the happiness of knowing you eustace is an old friend of mine i congratulated him when i heard of his marriage may i make confession i envy him now i have seen his wife the future of my life was perhaps in this man's hands i studied him attentively i tried to read his character in his face the major's sparkling little grey eyes softened as they looked at me the major's strong and sturdy voice dropped to his lowest and tenderest tones when he spoke to me the major's manner expressed from the moment when i entered the room a happy mixture of admiration and respect he drew his chair close to mine as if it were a privilege to be near me he took my hand and lifted my glove to his lips as if that glove were the most delicious luxury the world could produce dear mrs woodwill he said as he softly laid my hand back on my lap bear with an old fellow who worships your enchanting sex you really brighten this dull house it is such a pleasure to see you there was no need for the old gentleman to make his little confession women children and dogs proverbially know by instinct who the people are who really like them the women had a warm friend perhaps at one time a dangerously warm friend in major fitz david i knew as much of him as that before i had settled myself in my chair and opened my lips to answer him thank you major for your kind reception and your pretty compliment i said matching my host's easy tone as closely as the necessary restraints on my side would permit you have made your confession may i make mine major fitz david lifted my hand again from my lap and drew his chair as close as possible to mine i looked at him gravely and tried to release my hand major fitz david declined to let go of it and proceeded to tell me why i have just heard you speak for the first time he said i am under the charm of your voice dear mrs woodwill bear with an old fellow who is under the charm don't grudge me my innocent little pleasures lend me i wish i could say give me this pretty hand i am such an admirer of pretty hands i can listen so much better with a pretty hand in mine the ladies indulge my weakness please indulge me too yes and what were you going to say i was going to say major that i felt particularly sensible of your kind welcome because as it happens i have a favour to ask of you i was conscious while i spoke that i was approaching the object of my visit a little too abruptly but major fitz david's admiration rose from one climax to another with such alarming rapidity that i felt the importance of administering a practical check to it i trusted to those ominous words a favour to ask of you to administer the check and i did not trust in vain my aged admirer gently dropped my hand and with all possible politeness changed the subject the favour is granted of course he said and now tell me how is our dear eustace anxious and out of spirits i answered anxious and out of spirits repeated the major the enviable man who is married to you anxious and out of spirits monstrous eustace fairly disgusts me i shall take him off the list of my friends in that case take me off the list with him major i am in wretched spirits too 
You are my husband's old friend. I may acknowledge to you that our married life is just now not quite a happy one. Major Fitzdavid lifted his eyebrows, dyed to match his whiskers, in polite surprise. Already! he exclaimed. What can your stars be made of? Has he no appreciation of beauty and grace? Is he the most insensible of living beings? He is the best and dearest of men, I answered. But there is some dreadful mystery in his past life. I could get no further. Major Fitzdavid deliberately stopped me. He did it with the smoothest politeness on the surface, but I saw a look in his bright little eyes which said plainly, "'If you will venture on delicate ground, madam, don't ask me to accompany you.' "'My charming friend!' he exclaimed. "'May I call you my charming friend? You have, among a thousand other delightful qualities which I can see already, a vivid imagination. Don't let it get the upper hand. Take an old fellow's advice. Don't let it get the upper hand. What can I offer you, dear Mrs. Woodwell? A cup of tea?' "'Call me by my right name, sir,' I answered boldly. "'I have made a discovery. I know as well as you do that my name is MacAllan.' The Major started and looked at me very attentively. His manner became grave. His tone changed completely when he spoke next. "'May I ask,' he said, "'if you have communicated to your husband the discovery which you have just mentioned to me?' "'Certainly,' I answered. I consider that my husband owes me an explanation. I have asked him to tell me what his extraordinary conduct means, and he has refused, in language that frightens me. I have appealed to his mother, and she has refused to explain, in language that humiliates me. Dear Major Fitzdavid, I have no friends to take my part. I have nobody to come to but you. Do me the greatest of all favours. Tell me why your friend Eustace has married me under a fool's name." "'Do me the greatest of all favours," answered the Major. "'Don't ask me to say a word about it.' He looked, in spite of his unsatisfactory reply, as if he really felt for me. I determined to try my utmost powers of persuasion. I resolved not to be beaten at the first repulse. "'I must ask you,' I said. "'Think of my position. How can I live, knowing what I know, and knowing no more?' I would rather hear the most horrible thing you can tell me than be condemned, as I am now, to perpetual misgiving and perpetual suspense. I love my husband with all my heart, but I cannot live with him on these terms. The misery of it would drive me mad. I am only a woman, Major. I can only throw myself on your kindness. Don't, pray, pray don't keep me in the dark. I could say no more. In the reckless impulse of the moment I snatched up his hand and raised it to my lips. The gallant old gentleman started as if I had given him an electric shock. "'My dear, dear lady!' he exclaimed. "'I can't tell you how I feel for you. You charm me, you overwhelm me, you touch me to the heart. What can I say? What can I do? I can only imitate your admirable frankness, your fearless candour. You have told me what your position is. Let me tell you in my turn how I am placed. Compose yourself. Pray compose yourself. I have a smelling bottle here at the service of the ladies. Permit me to offer it.' He brought me the smelling-bottle, he put a little stool under my feet, he entreated me to take time enough to compose myself. "'Infernal fool!' I heard him say to himself, as he considerately turned away from me for a few moments. "'If I had been a husband, come what might of it, I would have told her the truth!' Was he referring to Eustace? And was he going to do what he would have done in my husband's place? Was he really going to tell me the truth?' The idea had barely crossed my mind when I was startled by a loud and peremptory knocking at the street-door. The Major stopped and listened attentively. In a few moments the door was opened, and the rustling of a woman's dress was plainly audible in the hall. 
the major hurried to the door of the room with the activity of a young man he was too late the door was violently opened from the outer side just as he got to it the lady of the rustling dress burst into the room End of chapter 8